Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Is the U.S. Food and Drug Administration intentionally trying to wreck the U.S. nicotine vaping industry? It's a fair question to ask, considering every regulatory action the FDA has taken towards nicotine vaping products appears myopic and prohibitionary. And these actions are causing significant damage to the lives of people who vape and smoke. Joining us today to discuss the never-ending saga of the FDA's war on vaping are two favorite RegWatch guests, Amanda Wheeler and Greg Conley. Thanks to you both for coming back on the show. Yeah, thank you, now, today is a first having you both on at the same time. Amanda, you're the president of the U.S. Trade Group, the American Vapor Manufacturers Association. And Greg, you just recently joined the AVM as Director of Legislative and External Affairs. First, Amanda, please provide our viewers a quick overview of the AVM. And Greg, if you could follow up with a bit about your background and what brought you over to join the group. Absolutely. Thanks for the question, Brent. Uh, you know, AVM really started out of a very grassroots effort to help small and medium-sized manufacturers comply with FDA regulations that were far beyond any one small company's reach. And so, you know, it was an effort of, of sharing resources, working with these small companies so that they could all get applications in. And then we later formed an official association to help defend those applications and stand up and speak up for those businesses. Back in 2010, I quit smoking and vaping while attending law school in Camden, New Jersey and getting an MBA as well. And I saw that back then there was virtually nothing to stop state legislators and federal politicians and regulators from trying to destroy this industry before it ever got the chance to gain a foothold and actually have dedicated adult consumers. So I was the volunteer legislative director for CASA, as you all, I'm sure all your viewers know, for about three years. And then I formed the AVA, the American Vaping Association, the 501c4. And I was very content working there um, raising money for our own organization, getting to run things through my own ideals as to what I think a fair and sensible regulated nicotine vaping market would be. But then I saw the tremendous work that AVM was doing, and I kind of just sat back and watched for 12 months, 16 months, and then I was convinced, well, they're doing things the right way. I thought, well, this industry is becoming uh, so hectic, so insane, um, that it makes sense to actually try to join up and defend the industry rather than just the product technology itself. Well, I think that's a, a good place for us to dive in. And, and Amanda, you said the same thing, defend the PMTA applications. Why does the industry need defending against the FDA? Well, Brent, how long do we have, right? There, the answers to that are, are numerous and, and complex, but you know, luckily you have a pretty uh, informed audience. So you know, I'm sure there's quite a lot of background folks have. Uh, you know, for one, there's a massive misinformation campaign out there, you know, driven by hundreds of millions of dollars spent by these unaccountable billionaires to mislead the public on vaping. You know, not only have they misled public opinion, they have misled policymakers through robust lobbying efforts. Um, they have exerted an extraordinary amount of undue political influence on the FDA. 
through their political champions in the Prohibition Caucus in Congress. Um, so, you know, it's multiple fronts, but it, it all originates from this outdated mentality that some of these prohibition activists have. I think they are bringing the fight to us that they wish that they had brought to the big tobacco companies decades ago. And they see this new war on vaping as the tobacco war 2.0. It's their reason for existing, for self-perpetuating. Uh, and so there's a lot of motivation on the other side to demonize our products, to uh, make the FDA process unworkable, to um, continue this war against flavors. So our industry definitely does need defending. So when it comes to status on FDA action, we had the original PMTA process and then this separate process that was added on with regard to synthetic nicotine, which you and I talked about back in the spring. Where exactly are we at with those processes? Because this st it still seems to be that there's a lot of product on the shelves. Yeah, those processes are in total disarray. Uh, from the original 2020 applications for tobacco-derived products, FDA very proudly states that they've denied 99% of those applications. Uh, I believe there are about 55,000 SKUs per FDA data that are still under review. Uh, with the synthetic nicotine applications, companies were only given 60 days to put those submissions together. And so obviously that was a very frantic and rushed process. It gives FDA many opportunities to sort of nitpick over details and, and deny most of those applications, which, which is what we've seen them do. Um, they keep putting out in their public communications that you know they've only accepted 350 of those applications, that they have denied the vast majority of them. Uh, so clearly they're, they're very proud of their war on vaping and they, can, they intend to continue along those lines. And Greg, in Washington, are, is anybody listening uh, as you're trying to defend the industry? Very few. We have some hopes. We, Amanda, myself, uh, Tim Andrews from Americans for Tax Reform, we're just about to hit the road with the We Vape, We Vote bus tour, uh, hoping to connect with some primarily challengers in different districts, House District, Senate races across the country to make the issue known that this is a serious vote moving issue and that you have American small businesses that are being destroyed. Unfortunately, the weight of public opinion influences the way that 50, 60, and 70-year-old-plus legislators in Washington, D.C. think. And when you have 75% of the American public believing vaping could be just as hazardous as smoking, it can be difficult even for the legislators who get what we're saying, who understand it, who see this process as broken, to be willing to step up and actually take a tough vote or introduce a bill or make a speech. But I think the more products that FDA bans and the more American companies that get angry about it and contact Congress, the better. There seems to be one side of the political debate in Washington that seems to be hell-bent on eradicating vaping. Um, a more of a progressive caucus maybe is, is a good way to put it, but it's certainly on the Democratic side. Is the FDA pandering to that group and let's say even the CDC, or are they kind of bowing to that group, you know, and bending towards it? What's your thoughts there? Absolutely. The progressive legislators in the U.S. Senate and Congress have put the most pressure on FDA. They've called hearings. Dick Durbin sent a letter uh, to commission, the commissioner of the FDA right before they banned Juul, conveniently saying you should be fired if you don't ban Juul. 
But what we've also seen is that conservative legislators, if R.J. Reynolds and Altria come to them and say, well, this would be good for the e-cigarette industry or those bad actors over there, we have to deal with them. They will take their input as if it is the input of the business community, quote unquote, around these products. So both sides have their issues. But really what FDA, what, ha what is happening with FDA is the, the bureaucracy, the regulatory agency will often do what they will get the least pushback on, what they will, what will be the easiest politically for them. And when you have politicians, mostly on the left, but some on the right as well, that are just saying, we don't really care if you're doing it right, you're doing your jobs properly, just ban more stuff. The incentive is for them to ban more stuff. And so that's why, uh, part of the reason why court challenges um, have been so important and will be so important going forward because the political routes uh, are absolutely worth exploring, but it's a difficult road ahead. Can the FDA be taken seriously though in these bans? And I throw this to either one of you because it certainly seems that they can't get it straight. So with Juul, they banned Juul while they denied the application. And then, you know, 10 days later, they stay that denial. And so then Juul can keep operating. And then with all of the products that they have um, not accepted, I mean, how many of those have been actually removed from the market? When you take a look at the market, there's disposables everywhere. I mean, there's been no decrease in product uh, on the shelves. So is it really just like, a, you know, the boy who cried wolf kind of syndrome? Well, you know, one of the troubling things that we've seen lately is FDA has really taken some draconian enforcement measures on a handful of very small mom and pop businesses, um, you know, sticking the full weight of the United States Department of Justice on, you know, single location vape shop owners in very rural communities across the country. And so, you know, it's odd because that's happening at the same time we're, we're seeing a flood of unregulated imports. And so um, I think FDA oftentimes takes the path of least resistance, right? They look for the easy targets that they can round up quickly. You know, if they can sit in an office in Maryland and do an internet search and issue warning letters, they're happy to do that. If, you know, if they're getting pressure from their pals to take stricter measures, they have no problem turning the Department of Justice on very tiny businesses. But, you know, at no point in time have we seen them actually go after the folks who have made no effort whatsoever to comply with regulations as far back as, you know, 2016 deeming. Um, it's, it's these companies that have existed in this country for over a decade that have taken every pain to comply with every one of their, you know, frivolous edicts. Those are the companies that we see FDA really coming after because they, they are totally going after the easiest targets. Now, could you describe uh, what the damage is being done by FDA's action to the small businesses across the U.S. that are in the vaping market? It's been catastrophic. You know, we've seen already, even under the enforcement environment that exists, we've already seen uh, long established businesses be forced to close their doors. Uh, you know, there's not a week that goes by that I don't hear of multiple vape companies being forced out of business. Um, and I would say if something doesn't change very soon, uh, that is certainly going to reach a point that will become irreversible in a very short amount of time. Uh, because now, you know, we see FDA making moves on retailers, not just manufacturers. They're going after retailers for selling products that don't have market authorization. 
Meanwhile, FDA has only issued authorization to products like the View Solo in tobacco flavor, which you know customers don't want, customers don't use, retailers aren't carrying those products. Uh, FDA isn't putting out any kind of communication about you know what products are still allowed to be sold, what's still under review, what's been turned around via uh, court cases, what's been turned around via FDA administrative stays. There's absolutely no guidance whatsoever for retailers. And so companies that are, that are selling the products at the customer level are really left to guess and piece together whatever information they can find. So, so the devastation has already been quite bad and I think we'll see it get much, much worse over the next several months. Greg, let me ask you about CDC because uh, new numbers came out today uh, with regard to youth use. What was that messaging and what's your reaction to it? So the messaging, of course, was as per the usual, everything is on fire and we need to ban more stuff. But what the numbers actually show is that since the youth vaping epidemic reached its peak in 2019, you've seen the numbers for high school youth go down by half and the middle school numbers go down by more than half. So last year during the pandemic, the CDC got permission to do the National Youth Tobacco Survey for 2021, but because about half of students weren't going to be taking it in school, but instead taking it at home, they said you couldn't compare this year to subsequent or past years. Last year, they found that if you took the test in school you were, and you were a high school student, 15% of them had vaped in the prior month. Meanwhile, if you were taking the, the test at home, which either goes to you don't have peer influences looking over your shoulder while you're taking the test, or just you don't have the opportunity uh, to acquire a new cigarette from a friend if you are not at school, you were down to 8%. Nonetheless, what you find is that the numbers for 2022 are virtually identical to the numbers for those who took the test in high school last year. So lower, 14.1% for this year, 9% overall between middle school and high schoolers. And 9%, you can always do better. You can always enforce more. There are absolutely bad actors out there that should be enforced upon. But 9% of youth using these products is considered just the same as 20% or 25% to the anti-tobacco and vaping group because their goal, regardless of how low you drive that number, is to ban as many products as possible. And that's the messaging that you got out of the FDA and CDC today. There is no good news. Uh, I know that if I considered something to truly be an epidemic among youth, among at-risk youth, and in three years, we managed to, to break that number down in half, I think that was a pretty good thing. You get none of that optimism from regulators. It appears that they are looking for zero vaping. That's the goal, zero vaping among youth, and they're going to destroy the lives of adult uh, smokers and vapors in order to achieve that zero vaping among youth. Pretty much, they, their goal is to eventually ban all tobacco and nicotine products. That it would be another, that it would be another failed drug war that we're just coming out just today with President Biden's announcement on cannabis that we're coming out of one particular drug war that was failed, that failed miserably. The fact that marijuana usage among teens is now extremely similar to the youth vaping rates. None of that matters because the end goal, yes, is to ban all these products. And hey, if we ban the products, then we won't have adults smoking or we won't have youth vaping. They think that if you just get to prohibition, 
then it's manageable. But what they're going to find out in the next few years is good luck, because uh, especially when it comes to products that are imported from overseas, controlling that is not as simple as sending the DOJ after an American small business manufacturer. Should the FDA be taking the UK more seriously in terms of the science on vaping? Well, it's a very easy question to answer, of course. We have been uh, all the way back in 2016 or 2017, I handed our the then Surgeon General, now current Surgeon General, uh, Vivek Murthy, a copy of the Royal College of Physicians report on vaping. And then six months later, he put out a report solely focused on youth that uh, is remembered fondly by many of your listeners, I'm sure. Um, but you can see even in the UK, when they do polling, they find that it's about 47, 47, 43, 47 in terms of people in the UK, which has the most uh, advanced thinking on vaping products medically wise or within the public health community. You still have half and half with regards to is vaping safer than smoking? So just fixing uh, the regulators, fixing the public health people often isn't even enough, as you can see in the UK, to to correct all this misinformation that's out there. I would agree. You know, I anytime I've been in the UK, it's always a breath of fresh air to me to see how many people in that country use the products. You know, I went to see a production of Hamilton over in London and during intermission, I walk outside and, you know, you usually see a crowd of people smoking. I didn't see a single cigarette smoker. I saw a crowd of about 25 people who were all hitting their vapes. And to me, it was sort of a shining example of the potential of harm reduction. Uh, and so I, I think every government in the world should be looking to them for an example on, on how to handle this properly. And as Greg said, you know, misinformation is still an issue. You know, public health messaging is a complicated topic. But as far as policy and regulation go, there are light years ahead of us. And it's certainly a model we should strive to emulate. The whole misinformation issue is very interesting. Dr. Kenneth Warner and Cliff Douglas were just on our show um, earlier this month, and they put out a policy paper recommending tough compromises on some of the key issues in the debate over vaping. And in that paper and on our show, they took very careful aim at FDA, CDC, public health, other public health agencies, and then the nonprofits, the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, Bloomberg, and Truth Initiative, and basically laid the entire misinformation uh, problem at their feet, especially FDA. So on one side, there's misinformation and the agencies kind of, you know, tut tut that and, well, we have to do something about it. But in the end, they're the ones to blame. They, they are the ones to blame and, and they have no intention of committing any resources to solving that problem. Uh, you know, last week uh, during the Global Tobacco and Nicotine Forum, Brian King spoke. And one of the questions that, that many members of the audience wanted to ask him was, you know, what are you going to do to correct this misinformation problem that you yourself have acknowledged? And, you know, he fled the room because I don't think he was ready to take those kinds of hard questions. But, you know, Guy Bentley put out an article. He spoke to Brian King as he was fleeing. And, uh, you know, King said in no uncertain terms, we're not able to commit to doing anything to correct the record on misinformation. Yeah, and I'll give one compliment to Mitch Zeller, followed by a great deal of criticism. Back during Ebali, which is the single biggest event that has uh, tortured Americans' law, uh, understanding of harm reduction on vaping and smoking, 
it was the FDA who in early September 2019 put out the statement on their website, don't make THC, especially from illicit market sources. And meanwhile, it took about two and a half months for the CDC to then come out and painstakingly admit, sort of, that it was not nicotine vaping products causing Ebola, or it was unlikely the nicotine vaping products were the driving force behind Ebola. Uh, but Mitch Zeller also, uh, from 2015, 2016, for the next couple of years, every conference he would go to, and this was a staple of Mitch that eventually Brian came to learn how to do, you perform as a regulator and you talk about harm reduction, you talk about the continuum of risk. And Mitch Zeller several times did say at conferences that we are working on nicotine misperceptions. We are working on uh, figuring out how to thread that needle. That's another phrase you learn as a regulator. And how to do the the, the education to adults without uh, unnecessarily impacting the knowledge of children, et cetera, et cetera. And towards the end of Mitch Zeller's reign, especially once uh, the new president took over the office, that left the presentation. So Brian King coming in and doing nothing about correcting risk misperceptions is not new policy. It's just a continuation of Mitch Zeller eventually deciding, oh yeah, we're not, we're just not going to do that. And we're not going to tell anybody we're not going to do it until you ask. Yeah, interestingly, misperceptions are one of the things that the Reagan Udall Foundation is looking into in their inquiry into CTP's review process. They've got uh, three different topic areas that they're looking at, and I was very surprised to see that uh, misperceptions around the products were part of one of those topic panels. It's interesting. I think sometimes the regulators, they put in their head, it's okay to talk about misperceptions because they're thinking about the misperception that vaping is as safer than smoking. That's the, that's a misperception that they're happy to go out and, and try to dispel. Greg, more on the uh, youth vaping numbers. I saw a tweet of yours today about the journalism. Tell us about that. Yeah, I was surprised to see today that for one, the Associated Press took the news about the youth vaping numbers actually going down by half over three years and presented it as, well, progress has stalled. That's uh, quite the take. Then there was something worse. NBC News Health's Erica Edwards, who has always produced very, very one-sided pieces that just quote Matt Myers and American Lung Association, et cetera, her article today featured two anecdotes from people who were apparently vapors in their youth and are now in college. And the article notes both of them use the Truth Initiative's Stop Vaping program in order to get off of vaping. And of course, each have their own horror stories of how bad vaping was for them. What the reporter failed to note and can be found by a fairly simple Google search is that both of those students are paid one-year ambassadors for the Truth Initiative. So. Let me ask you this, if vaping was producing so many horror stories that people who vaped when they were 15, 16 still wanna talk about it at length when they're 21, 22, wouldn't a journalist not have to look far? Wouldn't a journalist be able to find those horror stories without calling the Truth Initiative and saying, send me to youth who hate vaping? Uh, so that's just an example of the, the kind of routine, unethical conduct that in most other fields would not be happening on this front. But because it is vaping, because it is the evil tobacco and nicotine industry, some journalists feel that no rules apply. So we will be, by the time you all see this, I think AVM will have sent a letter to NBC 
uh, asking what what is with this omission and why were you aware of it before you put this article up? I think it's true to say that if you so much as take a free coffee from somebody in the traditional tobacco industry, you know, you'll never sit down with government again. But of course, you know, you could be a paid advocate for anti-vaping forces. And of course, you know, you're you're welcome in the you're ushered into Congress. You can't turn over a rock in the tobacco control space without finding a sack of Bloomberg cash. Right. Um, it's one of the things that, that keeps us occupied on a full time basis over at AVM as just dealing with all of these media outlets that are completely on the take from Bloomberg Philanthropies, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. I mean, everywhere you look, there's undisclosed financial influence. And, you know, we're rooting it out one outlet at a time. But it's just it's so pervasive. It boggles the mind. So uh, tell us, Amanda, about the big tour that's launching on Saturday. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, AVM and CASA are partnering with Americans for Tax Reform uh, to resurrect the nationwide bus tour. A lot of people will remember uh, we did one in 2016, the Right to Vape tour. Uh, this this year, uh, our focus is on the midterm elections, especially in some of these very close congressional races. Uh, I think it's high time that these politicians learn that there are you know millions and millions of adults in america who use these products that are watching the decisions that they make on vaping policy that it's not a throwaway issue where they can score you know some easy points without losing support you know we, we really need to step up and let our lawmakers know that that we care very much what they're doing on this topic that we're watching and that it impacts how we vote when we go to the ballot box uh, because, you know, that is one way that we can get long term change. You know, we need to organize as as a group of, you know, politically active people and, and really put out that message that this is an important issue that matters to millions of voters. I've got a very serious question here. It sounds funny, but it's not. In any way, in any manner, do you think that Nicotine vaping in the United States is now too big to fail. Yes, for one reason. I think the consumer demand is there, right? Uh, we've got, depending on what source you trust, we've got 12 to 15 million adults in this country who have tasted a better alternative. Um, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. So there is a way in which it, it's too big to fail because there are just too many people that depend on these products, you know, change is slow. Uh, systemic bureaucratic changes are, are difficult. Um, it's going to take time. Um, but I certainly do think that that there is a distinct possibility of, of things improving for sure. Um, I would say, you know, congressional oversight in the short term uh, is a goal many people in the advocacy community are working towards. And, you know, in the near term future, that's probably one of our best avenues to get some kind of change. Um, but I do think vaping is here to stay. We may have some years of struggle ahead, but at the end of the day, I've, I've got to believe that, that the truth about harm reduction, the truth about the products will win the day.